It's May 29th, 1908, and the 60th Congress is facing a two-front war. On one front, Washington, D.C.'s oppressive swampland heat shows itself on the wet congressional foreheads of weary and tired faces. The temperature peaked at 92 degrees inside the Capitol building. But the second front was from within. They're about to vote on a piece of legislation that one Wisconsin senator is not thrilled about. And, with what we might call intestinal fortitude, he is aiming to do whatever he needs to to stop it. Senator Robert LaFollette embarked on what would become an 18-hour and 23-minute speech on the Senate floor, setting the record for the longest filibuster in American history for at least the next 50 years. But the night is growing longer, and LaFollette realizes the strength needed to make it through the night would require some food. At the same time, if he leaves the floor, he will thereby forfeit his cause, and the bill will move to a vote, where it is certain to pass. Sending a Senate page to the Capitol building's kitchen, the senator requested a sandwich with milk that was, quote, fortified by eggs. Just after 1 a.m. in the morning, LaFollette took two gulps of the eggnog mixture. It tastes strange. And LaFollette, according to a letter he wrote a few days later to his family, is concerned that he's been poisoned. It isn't too long before he begins sweating profusely, barely holding himself up, and in what he described as a, quote, rumbling and gurgling loud enough to waken a sleeping household, his steeled intestinal fortitude is put to the test, literally, in, quote, bowel trouble, which is the fiercest I ever experienced. In spite of it, Fighting Bob, as he was called, persisted into the morning until just after 7 a.m. Now, the bill ended up passing, but there were some questions raised about the milk. In that letter to his family, LaFollette said that he had sent the rest of the milk to be analyzed by a chemist, in which the results of the analysis concluded that enough toxic bacteria formed that had he drank the whole glass, he surely would have been killed. Being a radical progressive determined to take on emerging corporations, monopolies, and concentrated wealth, LaFollette's family was always concerned about his safety, giving some steam to the idea that he may have been a target. Some have suggested perhaps it could have been his Senate colleagues who just wanted to vote and go home. Some had also suggested that the kitchen staff may have not been thrilled about working into the morning either. But perhaps it was the first threat. With the temperature peaking that high inside the building, it would not have taken long for the milk to spoil. To be sure, in all likelihood, Fighting Bob had been maliciously attacked by Salmonella. But there is some doubt that remains. If the heat ensured that it wouldn't take too long for that milk to spoil, then maybe, just maybe, the kitchen staff took their time. Either way, the filibuster is something you've probably been hearing about and you will hear about a lot in the next several months. So we're going to talk about the filibuster and what it might mean for President Joe Biden's agenda. With a narrow majority in the Senate, Democrats will need some cooperation from Senate Republicans to accomplish President Joe Biden's agenda. Ten Republicans will need to flip on any given major legislation in order for it to pass. And here's why. One of the biggest parts of the process that we have for passing legislation is debate. Senators are given time to debate before voting on any bill so they can make their case for or against, try to persuade their colleagues, and send a message both for their constituents and for history, both those who are for a certain bill or against it. It's a very important part of the legislative process. 
Now, at the beginning of the Senate's history, in order to end debate and move to voting for or against any bill, a preliminary vote was needed. Basically, a yes would mean to end debate, and a no would mean to continue debate. That preliminary vote is called a cloucher vote. And back then, a cloucher vote only needed what's called a simple majority, just one vote or more than a tie in order to pass. In 1806, the U.S. Senate killed the cloucher vote and allowed for an unlimited amount of time of debate. But this led to what we could call a loophole in the rules. Let's say that a particular bill is being debated, and suppose one senator really doesn't like that bill, just like Fighting Bob didn't like the 1908 bill. That senator could conspire to stop the bill from coming to a vote by keeping the debate open long enough to run out the clock on the session. But in order to keep the debate open, senators run into another Senate rule, which requires all senators to be standing when addressing the rest of the Senate and only seating themselves after yielding their time. So if a senator wanted to prevent a bill from being voted on by running out the clock, that senator would need to stand and speak for the time remaining of the session. That loophole is what we know as the filibuster. It's a Dutch word, I believe, for pirate, which is kind of rad. But before the 1840s and 50s, the filibuster was seldom used. There were other delaying tactics that senators could use, but there weren't that many senators, and only in national moments of immense division did it ever become a problem. Enter Senate Rule 22. Fighting Bob loved filibustering. He did just a few years before 1908, and he did it again in 1917, joined by other senators, to filibuster the bill that would have approved the U.S.'s entry into World War I. Angered by that filibuster, President Woodrow Wilson urged Congress to re-implement the Cloucher Rule in 1917. The Senate did so. However, there was a catch. The re-implemented Cloucher, known as Rule 22, would now require a two-thirds majority, otherwise known as a supermajority. Now, a supermajority is no easy task, and it meant that only one-third of the Senate would be needed to filibuster a bill from coming to a vote. So the filibuster remained, and afterward, the cloucher very rarely broke a filibuster. When the civil rights movement began, southern pro-segregationist senators began using the filibuster as a long-game strategy instead of a one-off tactic. South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond filibustered civil rights legislation in 1957. In fact, he holds the record for the longest filibuster in American history. Thurmond stood on the Senate floor and spoke for 24 hours straight with only two short breaks and only one bathroom trip, three hours in. Thurman was one of a group of Southern senators that carried out a 60-day filibuster to block the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Both that and Thurman's 1957 filibuster failed, and both pieces of legislation passed. Senator Huey Long had set the record at about 15 hours before Thurman's 1957 24-hour record. Long was well known for his filibusters being I think eccentric would be the right word. During that one in particular, the Louisiana senator read recipes for fried oysters and pot liquors. At one point, he noticed a few other senators were asleep at their desks. He requested of then-Vice President John Garner, who was presiding over the session, that every senator should be expected to listen to him until he was finished. Vice President Garner responded simply, quote, That would be unusual cruelty under the Bill of Rights. Now, the main engine behind the filibuster 
its fundamental power laid in certain Senate rules that basically forced the chamber to deal with only one bill at a time. In the 1970s, however, then-Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield of Montana changed those rules, particularly during the filibuster for the 65 Civil Rights Voting Act. He implemented rules that essentially created what some call a two-track system. His rules allowed for Senate leadership to effectively bypass the filibuster without killing it. By a unanimous consent vote or with the approval of the minority leader, the Senate can simply move on to another bill and thereby end debate. In one way, Mansfield's two-track system weakened the filibuster, reining it in so it doesn't prevent the Senate from doing business. But in another way, it strengthened the filibuster, or at least made it a lot easier to do. Senators no longer need to give us the show of standing up and speaking for hours on end, demonstrating their physical and mental commitment to opposing a bill. They simply need enough senators to say, hey, unless we move on, I'm going to filibuster this bill. And then Senate leadership, despite who's in the majority, is basically forced to move on to a different bill. That means that today, senators can simply threaten to filibuster, and the threat is just as good as actually doing it, resulting in the same outcome. In 1975, the threshold for cloucher, or the number of votes needed to end debate, was lowered to a three-fifths majority, or 60 votes in the Senate. But 60 votes is no easy task, especially today, so you can now see the situation that President Biden and the Democratic Party are in. With a 50-50 tie in the Senate, that's why 10 Republicans would need to flip in order to get anything done. Now, Biden isn't completely stalled here. There is something called reconciliation which we don't have time to go into today, but basically means that the filibuster can be bypassed on any bills that involve changing revenue, spending, or debt, which Democrats have signaled they are ready to use if Republicans don't get on board with the president's economic proposal, which will include stimulus payouts. But reconciliation can't do everything. So over the last few years, Democrats have toyed with the idea of killing the filibuster. The Constitution provides for both the House and the Senate to be in charge of their own rules, so Democrats would need a simple majority to change the rules and thereby remove it. You'll likely hear killing the filibuster referred to as the nuclear option. And there's good reason for that. It would mean that the minority party would have little to no mechanism to stall the majority. Now, the Democratic Party is divided over this, and I am too, but I have some thoughts on this I think the party should consider. Though they don't pay me to tell them what to consider. In fact, they don't pay me at all, so be sure to check out that Patreon, patreon.com slash thishistoric. But let's look at the political implications, the practicality, and potential steps forward. The first purely political implication is one of the central rules of politics. There is no such thing as a permanent majority. In 2013, Democrats pulled the nuclear option for confirming circuit judges killing the filibuster because McConnell's GOP was using it to block President Obama's nominees from being confirmed. Now, that worked, but the GOP won the trifecta in 2016 and began confirming conservative judges like it was going out of style. Then, Mitch McConnell hit the nuclear switch for Supreme Court nomination, leaving Democrats no way to filibuster the confirmations of Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. Now, I'm not convinced that McConnell wouldn't have done that anyway, even if Dems hadn't pulled the trigger in 2013. And also, I'm not sure how I feel about the filibuster being used for court confirmations. But politically speaking, the point is, is that the pendulum always swings back, and Democrats need to take that into consideration. As I've said before, Democrats should always operate as if McConnell is two steps ahead, because he usually is. A second political implication is the messaging. 
Now, I've heard the argument that the messaging should be framed as if it's just some archaic rule, who cares that we're changing it, but I think that's a bad bet. The majority of Americans are weary of institutional changes, and framing it like it's an archaic rule might end up backfiring. Instead, in my opinion, the framing should be rooted in the reality of the history of the filibuster. It's not an archaic rule, and it wasn't a part of the framers' design for our system. In short, the filibuster is a mistake, an unintended consequences of the 1806 attempt to clean up the rule book. And we know that because it wouldn't be until nearly half a century later that the filibuster would even be used. But the reality is, is that Democrats aren't that great at messaging, so they're going to have to put a lot of work into it. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. And if Democrats move to kill the filibuster without public sentiment, they may lose the majority in 2022. And then, of course, without a filibuster, they will immediately regret it. The third political implication is that even if they don't end up actually killing the filibuster, it would be politically wise to leave the option on the table. The mere intimidation of it may come in handy when dealing with what I'm sure is going to be a Republican Party bent on stalling Biden. But what about the practicality? Can Democrats even kill it? In the last few weeks, Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer were trying to negotiate the way the power would be shared in the Senate. McConnell's hill to die on was the filibuster, threatening that if Schumer didn't commit to protecting it, Democrats would get no cooperation from Republicans whatsoever. And that one's kind of funny because I'm not convinced that wasn't the GOP's agenda anyway. But Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a pretty conservative Democrat, and Arizona's Kristen Sinema have both publicly stated that they are opposed to removing the filibuster. Without those votes, Democrats are unlikely to kill it. And this is why, once those senators said that publicly, Mitch McConnell actually backed down, agreeing to a power-sharing agreement that didn't involve protecting the filibuster. Now, that doesn't mean that Manchin and Sinema won't change their minds. Political interests are a fickle thing bending at the slightest breeze, so we'll have to wait and see. Now, regardless of the political and the practical, what should we hope to do with the filibuster? In my opinion, the filibuster as it stands cannot continue, if not simply for the functioning of our system. Majorities, regardless of the party, need to be able to govern, otherwise our elections are next to useless, and we will continue to stay gridlocked, and neither party will ever get anything done. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to kill it, though. Take the Disclose Act of 2009. It was a bill that then-Democratic-controlled House passed in response to the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. The bill would have required disclosing the names of donors who give money to super PACs. It's a deep subject, but basically that bill would have helped combat dark money in our politics. In the Senate at the time, 59 Democrats supported the bill, just one short of the three-fifths majority which allowed for 41 Republicans who wouldn't vote for Cloucher to effectively block the bill. Democrats not only had the majority, it wasn't even a slim majority. Republicans were able to block the bill with nearly 20 votes less. This is an example that the political scientist Norm Ornstein used in a piece he wrote for The Atlantic back in September, and he made a good point. The burden to overcome a filibuster is placed on the majority, instead of the burden to continue debate being placed on the minority. In short, the minority should have to make the case on why debate should continue, and if they can't, then the bill should move forward to a final vote. There are other views too. 
Some have suggested that we simply go back to before Mansfield's two-track system, forcing senators to stand up and give us the show. And there's a part of me that likes that idea. Are you so committed to opposing this bill? Well, I wouldn't mind learning how to fry oysters. So cool, let me grab my stopwatch. 24 hours is the record. Go. I mean, at least it would be entertaining. At the same time, if the filibuster isn't going to add value to debate and elevate our political dialogue, then that might be more harmful than it is helpful. In 2013, Senator Ted Cruz embarked on a 21-hour filibuster that was a grand and noble attempt to elevate the conversation around health care by, in part, reading the seminal work, the one book considered today's leading authority in healthcare, Green Eggs and Ham. The whole thing was remarkable because I wasn't convinced that Ted Cruz could read, just like how a few weeks ago he wasn't able to read the room when he persisted in objecting to Arizona's electoral vote count even after his colleagues' lives were put in danger. But I digress. The other thing to remember is that outside of the political implication for Democrats, is that getting rid of the filibuster isn't the end of the world. In the 1980s, Republicans killed the filibuster in the House. Today, the House can actually pass things, and I think that's a pretty good incentive to consider killing it. But above all else, more than we need to remove the filibuster itself, we need to take the power out of the threat of filibustering. We have to make filibustering far more difficult. In other words, take the bluster out of filibuster. Yes, I made that up. Yes, I am looking into making t-shirts. And you bet, I will keep you posted. But either way, whatever Democrats decide to do, and whatever Republicans do in response, I think above all else, the biggest lesson is that all would be wise to always be kind to the kitchen staff. did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day, but this generation has a responsibility to resolve them.